Well, I chose that uh, video because it sets the stage for what we are going to be studying this morning as uh, we continue working our way through, uh, right now, the book of 1 Timothy, ultimately the book of uh, 2 Timothy, uh, through this series that we've entitled Caring for God's Church. And over the last two months, uh, we've learned a, a number of things uh, about the church. Uh, we've learned about how the church is supposed to be organized and how the church is to be led. Uh, we've learned who the church is ultimately uh, to be praying for. Uh, we've learned also uh, the danger that's posed to the church and for that matter of all society uh, when there are false teachers that infiltrate the church. And in the remaining uh, uh, verses of chapter 3, which are verses 14 to 16, we come to the point where the Apostle Paul, who was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this letter to his young uh, protege, Timothy, we come to where Paul describes the, the theme for the balance of, of first, the letter to 1 Timothy. And it's how Christians are supposed to behave in the household of God. So if you have a Bible with you this morning or a Bible app on your uh, phone, make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at uh, just a few verses, verses 14 uh, to 16. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. You can get up uh, and grab one or ask one of your friendly neighbors to pass one down to you. If you use uh, the Bible that's here in uh, provided, it's found on page 992. It's 1 Timothy 3 verses 14 to 16, and if you were able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word, please. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the spirit, or in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, as we have discovered over uh, the last, uh, well, since we started this right after Easter, there, there's this, this young guy, his name is Timothy, the Apostle Paul is writing to him, and, and Timothy is, he's basically, he's a church planter. Now, yes, uh, the, Paul was the, the founding pastor of uh, this Christian church in Ephesus that Timothy is, is now uh, presiding over or leading uh, but Paul hadn't stayed in Ephesus very long, and so he took this brand new church and he turns it over to a brand new pastor. And uh, now I happen to know uh, a little bit about church planting. Having started Living Water with my wife Kathy, uh, with Brittany Negi, as we talked about just a few minutes ago, and her folks, and, and six other families back in the summer of 2000. And church planting is not for the faint of heart. I've done a lot of things in my life, but starting Living Water has certainly proven to be one of the most difficult, and continuing to pastor Living Water has been probably one of the most challenging things in my life. Now, uh, there is much 
foundational work that needs to be done when you're planting a church. There, there are months of, of praying and planning and organizing and vision casting and uh, recruiting and deploying people, and, and the list goes on and on. But the prep work does not compare to what happens when people actually start showing up at your worship services. At that point, things go off the rails. It gets crazy. People do all kinds of things that they never tell you about in seminary. People have affairs. They cheat on their taxes. They get arrested. They, they do foolish things at their workplace, and they lose their jobs. Children die in car accidents. Others run away from home. They abandon their faith. They do drugs. They get pregnant. The friends that you make in the church as a, as a pastor or a leader, sometimes they, they get angry at you about what you've done or what you haven't done. Others come along and, and they try to hijack uh, the vision that, that God has placed upon your heart that you've been praying about for, for years. Volunteers at times prove to be unreliable. Leaders at times fail to lead. Folks complain behind your back. People who you have poured your life into, who you've married them or you've dedicated their kids or, or, or you have buried their parents or you have seen them through a sickness, one day they just leave and they don't even tell you why. And that's the normal crazy stuff. Let me tell you about the really crazy stuff can remember a time there was a, was a, a couple here, and it's years ago, and you, no, no one will, will remember them, but there, there was a couple here, and uh, the, the woman was going through, a, she, she had a boyfriend, and the woman was going through a, a brutal divorce and, and a, a horrible custody situation. And she's coming to church every, every Sunday. And uh, she's dealing with her, her husband and her estranged husband and, and his attorney and are making life horrible for her. And then she looks over one day and she realizes that the attorney that who has been representing her husband is a member of Living Water Community Church. And she loses her mind. I can remember early in the life of our church we had a, sta or a, a, a student ministry event. They went to Dorney Park. Our student ministry pastor at the time, who was our first one, uh, no one will, probably no one remember, maybe a couple people, but uh, he, did, he did not last long. And one of the reasons he didn't last long was he came back from Dorney Park without a kid. 
Needless to say, the mother was highly unimpressed. And I will never forget the day that I drove up onto this church campus at about 6.30 in the morning. I think it was probably a Tuesday. And one of our neighbors is walking up the driveway, buck naked. That was quite a conversation with that individual. Unbelievable. And there are other things that are R-rated that have happened on this campus that I will not share with you. But that all comes with church planning, but there is still more. Outside of the church, stuff happens. In Living Waters Life, 9-11 happens. We're not even a year old. The economy tanks in the middle of our first building project. Same-sex marriage gets approved by the Supreme Court. Trayvon Martin is killed. Presidential elections cause people to go insane. Some people leave Living Water Community Church because they determine that there are too many Democrats at Living Water Community Church. Other people during the same time, leave Living Water Community Church because they've determined that there are too many Republicans at Living Water Community Church. And I'm sitting here thinking, you're all here because of Jesus. And then comes COVID. Mask on, mask off, wax the fence, or wash the whatever it was from Mr. Miyagi. The payroll protection plan, George Floyd, and guys who think they're gals. And I wonder, why are these remaining hairs on my head white? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, that's where Timothy finds himself. He is in the midst of this thing that is called pastor. Timothy, he is ministering in a large church. It is a city, or a large city, I should say. It is a, a city that is a major crossroads of commerce within the Roman Empire. It is a city that is, is diverse ethnically, culturally, economically, religiously. It's one that features this enormous temple dedicated to the worship of the, the pagan goddess uh, Artemis, or, or also called Diana. It's a, a pluralistic city that is not very tolerant of, of Christians who believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one gets to God the Father except through Christ the Son. And on top of all of those cultural pressures, he's got all of these huge pressures going on in the church. There were false teachers that are leading people astray. Some of them were former members of his elder board. There was confusion in the church over the roles of men and women. There, there are church members who are mixing Christian beliefs with, with pagan beliefs. The church is overflowing with controversy and, and quarrels. And to make matters worse, 
Timothy, he's alone. Paul's left him. He gave him the keys to the car and said, go drive. And then one day, a letter arrives. And Timothy reads it. And in the middle of that, or the third chapter of that letter, and they didn't have chapters in the letter, it got broken up over time, but it says these words, I hope to come to you soon. Timothy's got to be like, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. He's coming back. No longer dealing with buck naked people in driveways on my own. And then he reads on. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That word, but. I hate that word. Nothing good ever comes after the word but. I can remember in my high school days, if I heard it once, I heard it a dozen times. Mike, you are the nicest guy that I've ever gone out with, but. <laughs> I'm not romantically attracted to you. Wonderful. Can't we just be friends? And I think, I don't need a friend. I want a girlfriend. That's what I want. I got lots of friends. And just like my high school dating days, it appeared that Timothy was on his own. He was alone. And he was going to have to confront these problems. However, uh, the fact that he was, was alone and having to confront his own problems was one thing. But what was beautiful about Paul here is he gives him some solutions. He gives him some concepts, some, some ideas about how to do this. He, he, he may be alone and having to deal with the problems, but he's at least got a, a guidebook to help him with the problems. And in this letter that Paul sends, Paul tells him some extraordinarily important truths that Christian pastors and, and, and Christian people need to know about the church. There are things that, that crush pettiness, that destroy divisiveness, that foster healing and, and, and bring hope and build unity, and most importantly, they advance the gospel. And I, I summed up these, these uh, few points out of these few verses in, in three uh, truths. Number one is this. We are members of of God's family. Number two, we are indwelled with God's presence. And number three, we are protectors and proclaimers of God's word. So let's look at the first one. We're members of God's family. Look again at verse 15. If I delay, which he's going to, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
What we're told here is that the church is the household of God. As you see all in the video, it is far more than a building. It's God's family. And in order to, to fully grasp this, we, we need to understand what was meant by a household, especially in the context of the first century Greco-Roman world in which the Bible and the New Testament is written. In the first century Greco-Roman world of the Bible, a household, it had a master. It was the father, it was the husband, and then there was a wife and children and servants. And the master, they set the rules, and everybody else had to follow the rules, including the master. He, he couldn't just make the rules for the family and then not follow the rules. I guess you could, but that's not what, what God is alluding to here. He made the rules, the family followed the rules, and he was part of the family, so he also followed the rules. Secondly, the, the master assigned the roles and responsibilities to each household member. And everyone depended on each other to actually follow the rules and to fulfill their individual roles and responsibilities. If one person dropped the ball, everybody suffers. And if everyone does what they're supposed to do, everyone flourishes. Now, this is completely contrary to our American self-centered culture of individualism. Where everything is about I, me, and my. And the reality is we go through all this stuff about pronouns and things like that. If you're going to put pronouns behind your name, if you're an American, they're probably I, me, and my, because those are the most important things to us. We live in this culture where people say they care about others, but their actions demonstrate that the only person that they really care about is themselves. And I find myself, sadly, at times, in that camp. They care so much about themselves that when things go wrong in the relationship, whatever relationship that is, People tend to take their ball and go home. However, that's not the way that it was supposed to be. And this whole culture of individualism, which we love in America, was not the first century culture of the Bible. You see, in Jesus' day, it was all about the family was all about the household. And the individual's needs and desires, they were always eclipsed by the greater needs of the family and of the society as a whole. And if the family flourished, then everybody flourished. And if the family suffered, then everybody suffered. So let me bring this into the, the 21st century. Let me give you a little insight into the Leonzo household. Before the kids grew up and started their own households, which is the goal of every parent for their kids, right? It's to get them out, throw them out of the nest, pray that they fly, 
Some are going to crash to the ground. We get it. You know, it happens sometimes. But the goal of a parent, what? It's for your kid to, to flourish and grow and be an adult and, and, and have their own household, right? Well, before our kids started their own households, the Leonzo household consisted of me, Kathy, my son, Mike, my son, John, my daughter, Nicole. That was pretty much it. We're not big pet fans, so there were no pets, not even a goldfish. We couldn't afford a, a house cleaner or a landscaper, so they're, 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 you know, we didn't have like periphery people in our household like they would have had in the first century. And together, Kathy and I, we set the rules. And everybody, including me, were expected to follow those rules. And if John chose, and I picked John specifically, to go out and do his own thing, John suffered, but so did everybody else. And I can remember times, and, and, and John, John's a great kid, don't get me wrong, but I can remember some times where, where John just did bonehead things. And we had to discipline him. And, and Marcus lived with us. He shook his head up and down right there. But, yeah, <laughs> I won't tell that story, Marcus, all right? But, you know, John, he would get in trouble, and we were planning on going somewhere. And because he's in trouble, we couldn't go. Everybody gets punished because he did something foolish. Because if one stayed behind, the rule was everybody stays behind. And not only did I set the rules, but... I consistently went to work every day. Even when I didn't want to go to work, I went to work. Why? Because the family depended on me to make money. There, there, nobody, there was no one else to do it. Kathy was taking care of the kids. You know, I, I had to go and do it. And, and I remained faithful to Kathy because if I didn't remain faithful to her, not only would Kathy suffer, and not only would I suffer, but my kids would suffer, and all of you would suffer. When Kathy and I had arguments, we did the hard work of finding common ground and reconciliation. We had to humble ourselves, even when one or the other thought they were the one in the right. We had to take responsibilities for our failures. We, we, we had to be able to apologize to one another. And then after apologizing, the other person has to grant forgiveness. And if you had a camera in our house, you would see that we didn't always do it right. But we did whatever it took to ultimately do things right. Because we knew the health of our relationship directly impacted those three little kids. And God's household, it works the same way. Except God is a much better father than Mike Leonzo. You see, God determines the rules. He sets the direction for the family. He does his part. He is faithful. He is loving. He is kind. He is just, 
He rewards obedience and he punishes disobedience. And as members of God's household, you and I, we are called to do our part. We are to follow God's instructions and we are called to assume the roles and responsibilities that God has laid out for us. And when we do that, we all flourish. And when we don't, we all suffer. Now, throughout the world, there are innumerable expressions of God's household. Here in central Pennsylvania, Living Water Community Church is one expression of God's household. Christ Community, the Life Center, West Shore Free, Brookfield Bible, the Chapel, St. Paul's Missionary, Baptist Church, Midtown Community Church, which is going to start here uh, in September. They're all expressions of God's household. Some expressions of God's household are, are small home churches. Other expressions of God's household are these massive mega churches with multiple campuses. However, let me tell you what is not an expression of God's household. And that's the Christian man or woman or family that is going solo. Who thinks they don't need the church. Who doesn't worship with others during the week. Who downloads sermons or listen to K-Love or catch a live stream now and again and they think that they're doing church. You will not find a single instance in all 66 books of the Bible where there is someone doing Christian life solo. It doesn't exist. Now let me be clear, and don't get me wrong. I realize there are very good reasons why some Christians are not able to gather and worship with other Christians during the week. There are some good reasons. Let me give you a few of them. There are those who are severely disabled, the homebound, the elderly, shut-ins, those living in nursing homes, or those who have some sort of, 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 of life-threatening medical condition which presents, prevents them from, from attending a, a worship weekly. I get that. I'm not talking about those people. There are also those who live in foreign countries, or rural parts of America, where there are no reasonably close Christian churches, or their churches in their community perhaps speak a different language than they speak, or perhaps they, they, the churches around them have confused or weak or abhorrent theology, and as such, they too are dependent on downloads and live streams. I get that. And I am thankful that we're able to, to stream our services 
and that there are the people all around the world that, that in, in different countries, believe it or not, right now there, there's families in, in Panama, there have been military folks in the Middle East that, that watch our service. I am, I am grateful for that. So I'm not talking about those folks. What I'm talking about is those who have given up on the church, who turn a, a, a blind eye and a deaf ear to the words of the writer of Hebrews who says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, if we're going to stir one another up to love and good works, we have to be together to do the stirring up. You see, the church is God's household. We are a family. And families need to figure out how to get along. We need to figure out how to, how to live out love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control together. Because we need one another, but also the world needs us. The world needs healthy churches. But there's more when it comes to belonging to the household of God. Look again at verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, as members of God's household, we are indwelled with the presence of God. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about when he says that, that the household of God is the church of the living God. You see, the thing that is, is different about the God of the Christian Bible and the false gods of the world is the fact that the God of the Christian Bible, he actually wants to hang out with his people. He wants to be with his people. He wants to be down in the muck and the mire and the crud and the grime and the ministry with his people. He's not far off. He's imminent. He's here. Yes, he's great and he's grand, so he's both far off and he's close but but the other guys are just far off our God is close his spirit is here in the Old Testament God's presence manifested itself first in the tabernacle which the Jews would set up and tear down as they moved from place to place through their desert wanderings and ultimately God's presence was there in the temple that they built in Jerusalem but then Jesus comes and something amazing happens. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians and in Corinthians. In Jesus, you, and the you is plural, are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul doubles down on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you, plural, all of us, you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, us, we are that temple. You see, God, he doesn't dwell in a place. God only dwells in a people. And that people is his church. Now, we need to remember a couple things, though. 
we need to remember that God is, is omnipresent, which means he is in all places at all times. So you and I, we can encounter God in the woods, at the beach, in the mountains, on, on our back porch while we're watching the snow come down. We can do that. But it is in the gathered church where God's presence is the most experienced. When we gather together for, for worship on Sunday mornings or to pray on Wednesday nights, God's presence dwells powerfully amongst us. And, and we know what that's like at times because there's times where, where you can sense the presence of God in this place. Now this means that as the gathered people of God in the church, we are important, and the church is important. Coming together on Sunday mornings for corporate worship is important. It's, it's not something that, that we lay in bed on Sunday morning and think, hmm, do I want to go to church on Sunday or not? I mean, the fact of the matter is, well, our desire should be to be in this place. I can remember when Kathy and I were young Christians, attending the Hershey Free Church shortly after we got married. Our life was Sunday morning, hmm, do we feel like going to church or not? That's the way we lived our lives. Why were we like that? Because we were immature Christians. That's why we were like that. We were behaving like our kids behave. Do I want to do this or do I not want to do this? When they get older, what? They find out what commitment really looks like. Coming together on a, on a Wednesday night for corporate prayer, it's important. Being in a small group or a Bible study or a discipleship relationship, that's important. Coming together to serve our church family and our community, important. Coming together to stand for God's eternal truth is important. Why? Because God's presence is most known when his people are together. That's the way that it works. And because of that, it shouldn't come as a surprise that God cares deeply about what we actually do in his church. And that brings us to the end of verse 15. He says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What Paul is trying to teach here is that you and I as the church are to be protectors and proclaimers of God's word. Let me explain. When Paul says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, Timothy and those who are reading this letter would have immediately understood what he was saying. Because in the beginning, I mentioned that in Ephesus, there was this temple of Artemis, temple of Diana. That's what it would have looked like. It's destroyed now. The ruins are still in Ephesus. The thing is massive. That puppy is 150 feet wide. 400, almost 400 feet long. There's 117 of those columns. Those columns are 60 feet high, 8 feet in diameter. And it was those columns and the buttresses, which were the arches in between the columns, that holds up that massive marble roof. And so, so when Paul says that, that, that the church is the, the 
pillars and buttress of the truth, these people, they, they would have gotten it. And in a similar fashion, just like the pillars and buttresses in that temple, you and I are called to hold up the truth of God. And what is this truth that Paul is talking about? In Psalm 119, it says this, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. You and I are the guardians of the truth of God's word, the Bible. It's all of us collectively. We are the guardians. And we need to protect it from being used improperly by false teachers. Teachers who would misuse God's word as weapons to hurt others. Like the spouse who uses it to oppress one's husband or wife. The horrific people that live out there who claim the name of Christ, who use God's word as a sledgehammer to their spouse. Sadly, over the last 20-some years, I've known multiple people like that who have destroyed their spouse with God's word. We, we are to protect the church from teachers who would misuse God's word as, as a means to accumulate power. Like church leaders who, who want to advance their personal agenda rather than God's agenda. Leaders who want to lord over other people. We work crazy hard to make sure that we don't get leaders like that on our elder board or on our staff. Why, why do we require on our elder board that, that we have consensus? Because we don't, we don't want people lording over other people, that we're not content with a 51% to 49% vote. We've got to do the hard work. And, 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 our, and our vision and our leadership is built on, on the, the, the things that, that people in the past, God has spoken into their hearts like John Nagy and Gary Garber and, and Tom Stauffer and others. And, and we carry on that. We need to guard it from teachers who would misuse God's word as a vehicle to obtain personal wealth and prestige. Like pastors who accumulate big homes and nice cars and flashy wardrobes. We need to protect God's word from being watered down and twisted by those who seek the approval of man rather than the approval of God. By those who redefine marriage and sexuality and gender and human dignity. By those who pervert justice and in the process ignore the plight of the poor and the marginalized by those who, who, who fail to protect the most vulnerable among us and in the process turn a blind eye as our culture sacrifices precious unborn human life on the altar of choice. From those who seek to minimize sin and diminish God's holiness. From those who call what is right wrong 
by those who call what is wrong right. And from those who direct people through the wide, comfortable gate that ultimately leads to destruction rather than the narrow gate that leads to Jesus in life. But we aren't just to protect God's word. We're to proclaim it. We've been given the good news. We have the hope that people actually need. And the pages of God's word, they overflow with the commands for the church to collectively and for you and I as individuals to share God's truth with others. Listen to 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, has the truth of God's word, has it given you hope? Has it given me hope? If so, we're called to share it with other people. Why wouldn't we? If we were hopeless at one point, and someone led us to hope, and we find another hopeless person, would we not lead them to the very hope that other people led us to? And if we think harder, we think it's hard. It's not. When, when you do it with, with, with gentleness and respect, people receive it. And when they don't, it's on them. Now I realize this is a lot. Genuine living life as a member of God's household, experiencing the presence of God, denying ourselves, living for others, obeying his commands, protecting and proclaiming the, the truth in the midst of a culture that is hostile to Christianity and who happily chooses to believe lies while militantly being against the truth. It can be intimidating and scary and when you do it long enough take it from me it can be horribly discouraging and I have to believe that is what Timothy was experiencing because I know that has been my experience yet God's spirit who was, detect who was directing the apostle Paul's pen knew that that would be the case. God's Spirit knew that, that when you do the stuff that I just talked about, it's going to be hard, and it's going to be discouraging, and you're want to, going to want to give up. And so he wraps up these three uh, verses with a single verse that points Timothy and you and I and every other Christian who needs encouragement to press on in faith and obedience to the very place that we find hope. And rather than read it to you, we're going to read it out loud together. You don't have to stand, but we're going to read this out loud together. Let's do this. Ready? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the Spirit, or flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Folks, you need that. That is the gospel. That is the hope. That is the power. 
I want to explain this just really quickly. This is an ancient hymn is what is being given here. And, and in this ancient hymn, he says, this is the mystery of godliness. This is the hope that we have. This is where it comes from. It says this, he, who's he? Jesus. And he was manifested in the flesh. What does that mean? It means he appeared in the flesh. But not only the fact that he appeared in the flesh, it means something else. He pre-existed. He, he has no beginning and no end. He's fully God. This Jesus, fully God, manifests himself in the flesh. Why does he do it? He does it for you. He does it for me. He comes to earth, and he lives the life that you and I are called to live, and we fail to live. But he does something else. He experiences our pain. He knows what it's like to have volunteers fail on him. He knows what it's like when leaders don't lead. He knows what it's like when friends leave us. He, he knows what it's like when people die who you love. And he knows what it's like to be tempted in every way like you and I are. But he doesn't sin. Critical. That is hope-giving. And then what does it say? It says he was vindicated by the Spirit. What goes on? God the Father says what? Jesus' baptism. This is my Son in whom I love, I'm proud of. The end of his life, God the Father looks down on him. Jesus is vindicated. He's proclaimed as God. It says he, he is seen by angels. Angels are there at his incarnation. They're there at his crucifixion. They show up all over the place. And then he is what? Proclaimed among the nations. People like you and me actually took Jesus' command in Matthew 28 seriously. Started telling people about him. And what happens? He is believed on by the world. And after he dies and resurrected and he's on earth for all of those days, he is taken up into glory. Folks, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. If I didn't have that, I would have been done with this a long time ago. And you don't just have to be a pastor. This is what should get you out of bed every morning. Because what does this say? It says not only that Jesus is Lord, but it says that he actually loves you. He cares about you. So much so that he died on a cross so that you and I might live. This is where hope comes from. We will find hope nowhere else. And as a church, this is what we proclaim the glory of the Father. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for uh, this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. Heavenly Father, forgive me for all of those times where I get discouraged and I, I forget that, Lord, you created the gospel for me and for all of those who love you, God. 
Lord, thank you for the truth of the word, your word. Help us, Heavenly Father, to, to, to behave like the household of God. Lord, help us to, to love one another and encourage one another, dear God. Help us to serve you and serve others. Lord, let us pr protect your truth in, in the culture that wants to destroy people. Lord, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, help us not to fall for that. Help us to trust you. Help us not to be afraid. Lord, things are not going to get easier. We know that. Lord, you are our only hope. Help us to cling to you and your word with all that we have. And help us to point others to the truth so that they too may live. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen.